0: Hello, my name is Mike Diedrich, and I'm with Veterans for Peace Chapter 92, and this is the Veterans for Peace radio show broadcast on KODX 96.9 FM. Uh, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and I also get my health care at the VA. With me are two uh, activists, authors, uh, reporters, journalists, Suzanne Gordon and Steve Early. Um, Most recently, they have collaborated with... uh, Jasper Craven on a book called <laughs> Our Veterans, which I, which I think is one of the most remarkable books on the, on the subject of veterans, in particular, veterans' health care. And let me, I'm going to read a little blurb from Amazon. In Our Veterans, Suzanne Gordon and Steve Early and Jasper Craven explore the physical, emotional, social, economic, and psychological impact military service and the problems that veterans face when they return to civilian life. The authors critically examine the role of advocacy organizations, philanthropies, corporations, and politicians who purport to be pro veteran. They describe the ongoing debate about the cost, quality, and effectiveness of health care provided on, or outsourced by the Department of Veterans Affairs. They also examine generational divisions and political tensions among veterans as revealed in the multi, multi, tumultuous events of 2020. From Black Lives Matter protests to the Trump Biden pre- presidential contest, frank and revealing our vet- our veterans proposes a new agenda for veterans affairs linking service provision to veterans to the quest for broader social programs benefiting all Americans. And as an introduction to uh, part part introduction to our talk, I'd like to mention that upcoming Suzanne and Steve will, among other people, will be will be uh, speaking at the. Uh, Public Forum on Labor, Veterans, Healthcare, Profiteering, and the Fight Against Privatization this Tuesday, March 28th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. at the Washington State Labor Council on 321-16 South Seattle. Uh, and it is a, a fundraiser for Vietnam v- Veterans for Peace. And I'll note that the sales of the book, Our uh, Veterans, is being donated, being donated to Veterans for Peace. And I thank you for that. So um, Suzanne, why don't you go ahead and start what why is what are the basic issue here on uh, particularly VA, veterans healthcare? care?
1: Well, I, I'd like to start. Um, I'd like to start by giving a shout out to Veterans for Peace because Veterans for Peace has a national project called the Save our VA Group. and um, folks like Bruce Carruthers, Jeff Roy, Arlis Heron, Mark for, Mark Foreman and others have really devoted an enormous amount of time to to this campaign to stop VA privatization. And I would argue that Veterans for Peace, small as it is, has had a huge impact in the struggle. And it's really the only veterans group, and veterans advocacy group, in my view, that really understands the issues and is fighting against privatization, tragically, and we describe it, this in the book. Our veterans, many other veteran service organizations have um, have actually lobbied for the kind of privatization legislation, like the VA <clears throat> Act, that is destroying the integrity of the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, Veterans Health Administration. No, but you know, the veteran service organizations are. Uh, again, as we describe in the book, um, they have fewer and fewer members and they actually are depending more and more on corporate funding from, um, you know, healthcare corporations that want to make money off delivering lower quality care to veterans. And and uh, the SOFA group uh, has been sending out uh, letters to Congress, has rallied uh, veterans around the country to Object to uh, these kinds of privatization schemes, and 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 what the, what we're all fighting, and I've I've been privileged to sit on the steering committee for Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute, and what we're fighting is uh, an all out attempt uh, to privatize veterans' healthcare um, through legislative initiatives, through internal efforts to cripple. Uh, the VA's ability to give care to veterans and the VA's ability to give adequate benefits to veterans. And this is a tragically a bipartisan effort um, that, I mean, it's led by Republicans, but has been embraced by Democrats. And the Biden administration, I mean, Trump made it much worse, but the Biden administration, which could have reversed it, has been just following pretty much lockstep in these Trump policies and not reversing Trump initiatives, and and that's part of what we talk about in in our veterans. Uh,
0: you know, you mentioned uh, veterans organizations getting on board with this, and I know that a lot of politicians, Democrats and Republicans, is uh, how how are they misinformed, if that's the right word, and do any of them have any regrets about it? I know that our Senator Patty Murray. Uh, voiced some regrets that she didn't really know what was happening about the the Choice and Mission Act. So uh, maybe, uh, Steve, can you speak to that? Uh, No, I think there has been definitely
2: some buyer's remorse um, on the part of uh, senators who uh, supported the Mission Act of 2018, which was hailed by the Trump administration as one of its proudest uh, uh, bipartisan legislative accomplishments, uh, and and over the last four, now five years, just opened the floodgates for outsourcing of of veterans' health care and draining of of resources that are needed to maintain uh, uh, the best possible functioning of our largest public health care system. It was a positive development um, uh, a year ago when uh, President Biden's new Secretary of Veterans Affairs Dennis McDonough unveiled a plan to shut down VA clinics and hospitals around the country. And as a result of the VA unions, veterans organizations like Veterans for Peace, veterans and their families uh, rallying against this uh, facility closing scheme uh, all around the country, that plan was uh, shut down. And a group of uh, senators uh, including Joe Manson from West Virginia on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee refused to confirm a presidential panel or commission that had already been named to rubber stamp these Biden administration proposals for, for downsizing, defunding, and basically dismantling the VA. So that was a great community labor uh, campaign victory for the foes of privatization. But um the struggle goes on because uh, when you have a healthcare system uh, with a budget of about uh, $100 billion a year serving already 9 million patients, and you have many more trying to get into that system as a result of the passage of the PACT Act last year, a great victory uh, to try to get more benefits and health coverage for uh, former service members exposed to to toxic burn pits and 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 uh, having other health problems as a result of their military service, uh, a third of that budget, that 110 billion a year, is going right out the door for medicine, Medicare-style reimbursement of private hospitals and medical practices, and uh, it's. Uh, soon gonna reach the tipping point. When you get to half of your budget going to outsourcing, you have hollowed out and greatly weakened and undermined the first choice of veterans, which is uh, their own system of hospitals and clinics.
0: Now, as I understand it, the VA actually has a, or had, probably still does, uh, uh, 20 or 30 or 40,000 vacancies unfilled. And and I also, as I understand it, this is actually uh, a funding issue for Congress. Congress could fund those fund those vacancy and also some infrastructure uh, uh, improvement issues. Why isn't Congress funding that? Uh,
1: uh, well, yeah. it's actually it's actually way worse. It's about seventy six to eighty thousand vacancies, and vacancies are actually an, an underestimation of the positions that they need because vacancies are just a calculation of people have retired, they've quit, they've left, they've died, whatever, and a a funded position is is vacant. Um, They actually need a lot more people to deal with current need like like the PACT Act and so forth. And it's a very simple answer. Um, They have consistently underfunded and understaffed the VA Uh, They underfund it, and then they don't have the money to staff it. And they create all kinds of um, outsourcing programs with that, which then justify the understaffing because they say, I mean, so here's what happens. You understaff, you have delays in getting appointments, you send people to the private sector. Then you say, when people beg for more staff, you say, well, wait a minute, why do you need more staff? All these patients are going outside the VA to the private sector. You don't need more staff, so they won't give more staff, so the delays are greater, and that justifies sending them out to the private sector. And that's what's happening. And its I don't think it's, you know, you say people, some of these people have been misinformed. I don't think they've been misinformed. I think they genuinely believe That you know, there's this idea, oh, the VA can't do it alone. They have to have well, they they need partners if they don't have the ability to do things themselves, but they do have the ability to do all this themselves if they had the staff. And so people like Patty Murray, you know, she voted for the Mission Act. She knew exactly what she was doing. John Tester knew exactly what he was doing when they lobbied for this. This wasn't a mystery. Um, You know, it's like, they what did they think was gonna happen when they voted for the war in Iraq? When was there ever a war that ended in three weeks, you know? Um, I, I mean, so I think that as Steve mentioned, you know, Uh, We have to just constantly be able to organize these coalitions of labor, of veterans, of of people in the community, because when you, part of the Mission Act was closing down, you know, was the plan to close down many, many VA facilities. When you close down a hospital in a rural area, you're not just impacting veterans. Right. Because if you don't have enough rural hospitals for the people in the rural area um, then you add veterans to that mix, the lines in emergency rooms are longer. The uh, lines for getting scarce primary care, and mental health appointments are longer. And that's what people realized when they uh, the secretary, Biden's secretary, announced that he was going to enact the Trump plan. And that's the kind of thing that we have to be constantly prepared to do because they are relentless and we have to be as relentless and effective as they are. Uh, And it's a question of, of, you know, for example, right now, Mike, the fight, the fight is to get the secretary who has the statutory authority to revise the Uh, Mission Act require the eligibility requirements that allow them to outsource so much care to the private sector. And we need to put pressure on the secretary who can through the rulemaking process reverse that. And he has to face staunch opposition and staunch pressure from veterans and community members to staunch, to to reverse um, the Trump era rules that allowed 60, 70, whatever percent of veterans to be sent out to private sector providers who don't have a clue how to take care of them. In the the budget request for 2024, in the president's budget request for the PACT Act money to be spent, they allocate 50% of those dollars to private sector providers. These people haven't got a clue how to treat these complex problems that they're going to be Brought by veterans, but they they want the money, and that that should be opposed.
0: Uh, Steve, you want to jump in?
2: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> another element of the um, kind of anti-VA privatization coalition that's very important, and hopefully will be on display at um, the forum in Seattle that you mentioned earlier, uh, Mike, that's going to be held on uh, the night of March 28th at the Washington State Labor Council office, is uh, single-payer groups. Um, you know, people have been campaigning for years for Medicare for All for some sort of national health system, I think, are realizing <clears throat> that one of our best working models of quote unquote socialized medicine is the Veterans Health Administration, the national system of, of uh, publicly funded hospitals and clinics that serves right now, about half of all veterans, about 9 million people. And um, the same people that want to privatize Medicare, uh, replace traditional Medicare with Medicare Advantage plans, which have been getting quite a bit of well-deserved negative publicity lately, uh, which cost the taxpayer more and often provide um, worse coverage than traditional Medicare. The same private healthcare industry interests that are pushing Medicare Advantage plans are feeding the trough of uh, VA healthcare outsourcing. And so I think single payer advocates are realizing that we're never gonna get Medicare for all if we can't even defend traditional Medicare <laughs> against Medicare Advantage plan incursion. And if right-wing ideologues are totally opposed to the whole concept of a public healthcare system, succeed with help from corporate Democrats, in defunding, dismantling, and privatizing the VA, um, that's a huge setback for everybody interested in healthcare reform. Uh, It's not just a veterans issue, it's one that the whole healthcare reform movement needs to take up. And I'm happy to say that Physicians for a National Health Program and other single-payer groups are uh, starting to align now with Veterans for Peace and uh, with uh, the various VA unions in uh, a common struggle to defend public provision of healthcare.
0: That's, uh, you know, on a personal note, I was, uh, I've been a VA uh, uh, participant for at least 15 years now. Before that, I was on my uh, wife's plan. She was a King County uh, employee, uh, Kaiser, or no, actually Group Health at that time. But, you know, that had its problems. Uh, nonetheless, there were the usual problems, scheduling that sort of thing. But at the VA, I've never had any problems with uh, with going back and actually having something, uh, um, a non-scheduled sort of port- appointment. I have always been treated with respect and dignity. The staff there, I always ask them, if you've got enough staff, and they always say no. They they are always underfunded uh, or understaffed. So it's a, it's a chronic issue and the VA, at least, is University or the uh, Seattle area is a very large structure. They just built a whole new, whole new a complex for mental health, which is uh, incidentally, uh, I got some treatment up there for PTSD, and it was actually great great treatment. Um, I might add that part of the part of the part of the process was using actually a group group health sort of, or a group uh, group therapy uh, with mostly Vietnam veterans and the, the group that I was in. But yeah. we used we used, we used uh, handouts from Thich Nhat Hanh, who is, you may know, a Vietnamese pacifist yeah. uh, monk. Uh, and it was kind of, a, I thought it was kind of forward think- thinking for the VA. It didn't have any problems with it. And actually, most of the Vietnam veterans didn't have any problems with using <laughs> a pacifist monk's, Vietnamese monk's uh, uh, therapy guidelines for SD. <laughs> <HD. laughs> it was great, actually. So. They're not giving that pamphlet out at Kaiser.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, one of the problems, Mike, is is a broader problem, and that is that our country isn't producing enough mental health professionals. It's not producing enough primary care providers. So the VA is dependent on the supply <clears throat> of healthcare providers that the American healthcare system produces, and we're not. You know, we don't have free education. We're healthcare professionals in training and um and we allow uh many providers like uh uh psychiatrists to refuse to take insurance, even though we as taxpayers pay for their medical training. Um and so it's a bigger problem than the VA. Um the VA is also not allowed to offer market rate salaries, because so, for example, many VAs don't have a neurosurgeon because neurosurgeons earn about a million a year. And you know, by law, no VA employee, including the secretary, is allowed to earn more than the President of the United States, which is something like four hundred thousand. And so what ends up happening is they pay private sector, uh, uh, practices, neurosurgeon practices, to take one example, they pay them as contractors and they pay them more than a million dollars a year because they're paying for the, the contractor, you know, it's like <laughs> a temp agency. And so the whole thing is completely crazy. They could fully, they could staff if they could or offer private sector salaries. Um, Now, of course you could say why does any, but why does a neurosurgeon um, uh, need a million dollars a year? And I would agree with you, but unfortunately uh, we haven't tackled that. But there are many solutions uh, to the VA staffing crisis. Some of them involve broad changes in the broader healthcare professional education system in America. And some of them are very concrete that could be done um, inside the VA and, and through congressional legislation.
0: Well, you know, I've asked some of my uh, primary care providers, docs, and also uh, uh, nurses. They are, to a person, to a, s- a staffing person, uh, happy and proud to serve in the VA. And some of them, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, they're not getting they're, they they are not getting private sector salaries. But uh, you know, one doctor says he says well, I says I get I make something like seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year, which is not a lot of money, certainly in the Seattle economy. But he says I've got enough to get by, and with my wife, and he says I'm proud to do that under that under that. Uh, uh,
1: yeah, it's a very um, different environment to work in, and people like the environment. People like, like working with veterans. They like having more time to deal with complex patients. They like working in a system. They like working in a community. They like not fa- pay. They like working in a system that isn't oriented towards, you know, profit. There's a lot of reasons why, uh, why people like working in the VA. And one of the re- one of the things that we at my group, Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute, are intent on doing, is making sure that the environment for healthcare workers and healthcare professionals. and and staff remains conducive to recruitment and retention rather than importing private sector practices that really destroy people's satisfaction with their work. One of the tragedies of the Biden administration is that they are not doing that. They are importing not the best practices but the worst practices from private sector medicine inside the VA.
2: The other thing, Mike, related to what you said about uh, your experience as a VA patient, um, and you're not going to find this at Kaiser or Sutter or university-based hospital systems, a third of the caregiving workforce, Veterans Health Administration, veterans themselves, 100,000 people been in the military, Um, very unusual, but it it creates a, a culture of empathy and solidarity between patients and providers that's totally unique. And uh, you send people outside, um, which is justified. If, if there's some specialized treatment that's not available inside the VA, that was always done. They should continue to do that. But just pushing people out the door in the direction of healthcare care uh, systems that don't have the knowledge, don't have the experience, don't have the personal connection with their patients when you invested hundreds of millions of dollars over the years uh, in in creating this institution that's so special and so specialize in its services and care for veterans. It's a disastrous uh, policy uh, mistake. And um, it's, uh, you know, to go from a mission-driven system, as Suzanne said, to one where people are going to be dealing with insurance company paperwork and management of care rather than providing of direct care and deal with all the hassles that make life difficult for doctors and nurses and therapists and the private health care industry, um, you know, what made the VA different will have been minimized and destroyed.
0: Uh, well, yeah, you know, it's just great to be as a veteran to go up there and actually I don't even need a VA card, which I have, of course, to check into the VA. You do it in a machine, you check into the kiosk, you're there and you get your your appointments or, or, or right, they'll call you. Uh, uh, it is really actually quite efficient, uh, it's an efficient system. Anybody who's got the access to the, to, uh, to the patient's um, information can do so if, they're, if they've got, you know, the authority. So that anybody you go to immediately knows who you are, what, you're, what you're, uh, your uh, past therapy or uh, health care has been. Uh, you know, it's it's very, very efficient system. So one of the reasons that, uh, who are the, I mean, the the VA is actually, there's some issues about actually some fraud in the VA outsourcing of uh, uh, health care and the providers are actually, they're overcharging for uh, VA care? Well, yes. I mean, the
2: inspector general of the VA has um, <clears throat> issued several reports about, you um, uh, uh, fraudulent billing, including by several of the firms that are still being used as uh, what are called third-party administrators. They're assembling this network of outside providers uh, that get the benefit of of, uh, VA privatization. But I think the larger threat, and this is uh, being reported on quite frequently now, uh, is some of the, the, the big... Uh, corporate healthcare providers, uh, United Health, uh, and uh, Cigna and others around the country that are uh, offering these Medicare Advantage plans—they're um, clearly uh, ripping off uh, the federal government, uh, charging more than they're supposed to, shortchanging patients who are persuaded, often through deceptive marketing practices to switch from their traditional Medicare coverage to some sort of Medicare Advantage plan under the guise of getting better benefits and paying less out of pocket. Um, so the same companies really um, want to benefit from uh, privatization of, of both of these federal programs. And uh, there's already a number of instances in which bad actors have gotten into the game and they're feeding at the trough, it's not in the interest of patients, providers or taxpayers.
0: Go ahead, Suzanne.
1: Well, I mean, another thing that's happening is that um, these there's something like 1.2 million providers in this euphemistically titled Veterans Community Care Program, which is the, really should be called the Veterans Corporate Care Program. But um, basically, they thousands of them have been literally tens of thousands of them have been engaged in overbilling or fraudulently billing the VA for care that they didn't provide, or provide or double billing for care they did provide, and you know in the private sector healthcare system. Um, it's a, it's, it's very common for providers to do what's called upcoding. So they pretend that, you know, they, they, they give you more care than they've given you or that your problem is more severe than it is. And then they can bill more for it. When they do that to Medicare, you can be, uh, finance, not just financially penalized, but criminally penalized. And these providers are, uh, fraudulently billing the VA and getting away with it, and instead of being barred from participating in the program in the future, um, they, they are allowed to keep up with these practices. And um, this is just a scandal. I mean, it's to the tune of millions, maybe even billions of dollars. Um, they have also, Steve mentioned, you know, one of the big actors in attempting to privatize Medicare, which is United Healthcare. United Healthcare owns Optum, which is being paid for by the government to put together these networks of out of private sector providers to which veterans like yourself are being sent, and um, and they get a cut of every appointment, so they have no incentive to make sure that the care is of good quality, that the outcomes are are of high quality. They don't have any incentive to make sure that, that you can get timely care. I mean, one of the biggest jokes of this whole program is that this mission act driven veterans community care program was was created because there were delays in the VA in getting care for veterans like yourself in the VA. Well, it turns out that the um, uh, the same rigorous wait time you know standards that are applied to VA are not applied to the private sector so they can say oh mike you know we can't see you for dermatology for for 4 weeks and uh that is you know excessive we we're going to let you go to the private sector and it turns out in the private sector you might have to wait 8 months yeah it's it's just a it's a it's a these people are you know uh just welfare cheats. you know. They're depending on our taxpayer money and they're ripping off the taxpayer and harming the veteran because we have studies that show that the care that the VA is superior. I mean, there was a study that appeared in the British Medical Journal that analyzed veterans who went to emergency rooms and some of them went to private sector through Medicare and some of them went to the VA and a veteran who went to the VA to get care would live twice as long, or let me put it this way, the veteran who didn't go to the VA, who went to that private sector, was twice as likely to die in the first 28 days than the vet who went to the VA. And that survival advantage lasted for an entire year because the VA delivers coordinated care. And for those very poor healthcare outcomes, in the private sector, the VA was paying 21% more. So it's just, you know, they're, and literally it is like turning on the spigot, telling the private sector providers to put the bucket and collect the, you know, cash, the gold flowing out of the spigot. And then, you know, keeping that cash, oh, I'm so sorry, keeping that cash, you know, from veterans like yourself.
0: Well, uh, over the last seven years, I've had two com- total knee replacements, most recently last June. And uh, when I went to the VA and they told me, says, Well, you need a knee. The doctor uh, says, Well, you know, there's uh, if you want, he says, We'll sign you up with some outside health care. He says, But they're not going to be any faster than we are. One of the problems that he said was that they're short of health care providers in the private sector. And uh, with the VA, even though they are short of uh, shorthanded, they put me on a schedule and kept to it, and actually I was on a, on a wait list, which I got in earlier than I thought I would. Uh, I don't know if that would have been the case with the private private sector providers, uh, um, and I don't think I would have gotten as good of care, follow, particularly follow-up. They are very rigorous about the follow-up on the knees, because you, you've got issues with infections and so on. Uh, the, the healthcare is just, in my opinion, um, outstanding.
1: Yeah, and all the studies confirm that. All the studies confirm that.
0: So, um, are there, is, is there any actually congressional sort of uh, uh, um, attempt to actually modify this Mission Care Act?
1: No, there isn't. And one of the things that we would ask activists and people in Veterans for Peace or anybody who's interested in this to do is uh, well, A, first join SOVA, or you don't have to join, you just have to help.
0: Yeah,
1: And you can do that by going to the website, um, Save RBA and, you know, begin to write. Um, SOVA provides what are called CTAs, which are letters to send to the con- your congressman. So, you know, you have a model. And um, um, there's a bunch of things that were... Fighting for. I mean, one of the things that's happening now is Republicans have introduced a a bill that would force um, uh, people in the federal government who work remotely to go back to work in person. And this would cripple VA's ability to deliver, um, particularly mental health, but other uh, medical services via telehealth. Um, it passed the House and we're trying to stop it in the Senate. It's called the Show Up Act. And, you know, Veterans for Peace has, has a CTA about that. Um, we also are trying to pressure the secretary to revise the access standards um, so that telehealth can be counted as access as if it's delivered in the VA. Um, unfortunately, telehealth is not counted as access if it's delivered Um, in the VA, but it's counted as access if it's delivered outside the VA. I mean, this is, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's going on. Um, So there's a lot that you can do. I mean, I would also suggest that people go to the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute website, which is veteranspolicy.org, and sign up for our newsletter. And that will alert people to things that are going on um, there's just so much that people can do, and, um, you know, pressure really works, I mean, it works in many regards, as Steve said, we we really killed this Air Commission, and it, that would have been a disaster.
2: The other tool that people might want to um, make use of, uh, which will be released in D.C. next Tuesday, uh, the American Federation of Government Employees, which is the largest of the four or five VA unions, uh, commissioned a survey of two to 3,000 of their members working both for the Veterans Health Administration, the Veterans Benefits Administration, the folks that um, handle benefit uh, disability claims, uh, and basically surveyed them about the impact of uh, outsourcing under the Obama, Trump, and now Biden administrations on their work, on their ability to provide <coughs> services to veterans, and, um, this is a report, uh, called Disadvantaging the VA, which really relies on the voices of frontline caregivers and administrative staff. Uh, and that's going to be released, uh, hopefully the veteran service organization, some of them will make use of it. that congressional staffers will, uh, be using it. Um, and it'll get picked up in the press because, uh, you know, the people inside the VA, uh, which has its flaws and has its problems, like any big federal bureaucracy, but um, generally does a very good job, uh, or tries to, as we've discussed today. Um, this is what people uh, on the front lines at the grassroots, the rank and file uh, caregivers are saying about the problems they're dealing with. So we're hoping that, you know, the Biden administration will uh, start listening a little bit more closely, um, and start undoing more of the damage that uh, the Trump administration did for, for four years.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned, uh, touched on it uh, earlier, Suzanne, the specialized care that's available through the VA that's not really available necessarily in the private sector. And I would, as somebody who's uh, suffered from PTSD and, would, and had very good therapy and good outcome from the VA, I mean, there, uh, you, you what is called the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of, of PTSD, and that covers actually it's not just sort of war trauma or something like that, but there are a lot of veterans who have problems with this uh, mental issue, and the VA has got a lot of experience with dealing with it and therapies, which a lot of it involves uh, counseling.
1: Yeah. Right, and VA is specialized in evidence-based therapies for PTSD, like Cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy, and studies have shown that private sector providers do not provide seventy percent of. In one study, private sector providers in mental health um, in in uh, New York State did not provide any of their patients with evidence based therapies. The majority of providers. This was a, a study conducted by Rand didn't know anything about military culture or PTSD and more to the point they weren't interested in learning. They wanted to, you know, give an hour for a vet, but they weren't willing to to give any of their hours. I mean, they weren't giving an hour, they were getting paid for that hour and they weren't uh, willing to uh, you know, spend any time learning about veterans complex health problems and you know, this will be a disaster if you send veterans out with these PACDAC uh, toxic exposures, because um, the, these are very complicated cancers and respiratory ailments that these providers don't know anything about. And, you know, you have to wonder what will happen to the information um, of about the, the treatment of these problems if they're sent to private, to private sector providers because there's no requirement that these providers coordinate care with the VA or provide them with any documentation um, about the care they received in the private sector. It, it, this is all dreadful. And you know, we just have, in, on our Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute website, um, we have uh, tons of, of studies that show that VA care, is more effective Um, and really, you know, that's what we want to talk about in Seattle. VA is a model of of care. You talk about PTSD. I mean, there's one of the biggest things in healthcare today among, you know, people who are really progressive in thinking about healthcare is this whole idea of trauma-informed care, trauma-informed primary care, trauma-informed, any kind of care. And the VA is the only system in the country that actually embeds trauma-informed care as their core practice, right? Because so many veterans have had trauma. And it's not just trauma, you know, battlefield trauma or military sexual trauma. They they come from um, environments uh, where in their family histories, there was a lot of trauma. Often what you'll see See among veterans, and I found this when I was writing my book, Wounds of War, um, which was the first book I wrote about the VA, and very often you'd see a vet who was, let's say, an Iraq vet who had PTSD, their father was a Vietnam vet who had PTSD, their grandfather was a World War II vet who had PTSD, and their great-grandfather was a World War One vet who had PTSD. I mean, this kind of trauma is the gift that keeps on giving, you know, it's like a sexually transmitted disease. I mean, it is in a way, right? It's a procreatively transmitted disease. And, you know, one of the things that is very is a very interesting thing in in trauma, in trauma treatment is that uh, healthcare can serve as a protective factor to mitigate trauma and you know the VA does this by creating communities you talked about the group therapy group therapy for vietnam vets or any kind of vet who's had ptsd it's it's not just a treatment you know modality it's an actual these relationships mitigate they they surround the veteran with with a community and they impact so they interrupt social isolation they give people a reason to live i mean i remember sitting in in two groups of vietnam vets in in peer group peer peer groups of vietnam vets in california and these were guys they were all guys and they had had spent decades you know suffering from ptsd and they came in and they said, you know, the this is our family. This is this is the reason why I haven't committed suicide. Um, it, it's it's an extraordinary system. It's the only system in in the country that creates community. And these and this kind of community is it's to say it's healing is it, it's an underestimation. You know what I mean? It because we talk so much about healing in our culture, and it's almost like it almost like trivializes it but um i mean when you see veterans sitting together and talking in a waiting room right um that's a that's part of the treatment in a way right it helps them survive and thrive and i don't know any other healthcare system that does that for its patients i go into the waiting room and my doctor and i feel like it's almost like a punitive environment
0: yeah, you know that's that's a good example of of, of uh, the sort of uh, encompassing uh, healthcare benefits of, of, of the VA, and, and they're dealing with uh, psychological trauma. Uh, the um, what was I going to say? Uh, Seattle has has uh, done, and other organs, other groups of the VA have done these veterans outreach uh, centers, which actually have been very helpful in in uh, dealing with uh, particularly. Uh, Traumatic issues. A lot of uh, what people don't really recognize is, as you you touched on, it is generational and the the number of, you know, it's always, you know, the Vietnam veterans, the crazy one, but, but the Iraq and Afghanistan veteran and also the first Gulf War veterans, military service is, even if you don't pick up a gun and shoot people, is a very abrasive and traumatic sort of experience. And you don't necessarily have to go to combat to have that sort of liability of military service. And that liability also extends really directly to the families and friends of the veterans affected. It's like absolutely. a pebble dropped in the pond. It's a widening circle well,
1: Absolutely. And in our first chapter, we talk about that extensively in our veterans. We looked at, you know, the military as really a kind of abusive employer and, and you don't have to go to Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, the Battle of the Bulge, whatever, to experience that abuse. I mean, um, uh, you know, uh, basic training, boot camp, whatever you want to call it is, depending on the branch of the service, is very abusive. It's it's a. Uh, You know, it's designed, it's an indoctrination program designed to break you down and build you up the way we want you. And the way we want you is somebody who will obey orders and kill people, which like we're not supposed to do, you know, and, and there's all this extreme exercise, there's pollution of bases. I mean, 126 military bases in the US are, are, you know, toxic dump sites, um, um, and um, military sexual trauma, which is not something only women suffer from. I mean, like, you know, it, it, it's it's not it's it's um, it's a training in anger, violence and abuse. <clears throat> and, you know, I mean, we didn't address this issue in in our book, but I mean, I believe we should have some form of national service, because I think that this kind of military service where they where they really abuse you to somehow make you over again is is a real problem. And we see this, you know, the abuse doesn't even start. I mean, in the military, I think Steve can speak to this. I mean, there's uh, now more and more knowledge of abuse in junior, and you know, ROTC programs in high school, right? Junior ROTC programs in high school um, where uh, they start sort of grooming people (laughs) for what is to come when they get into ROTC or the military. Steve, do you want to talk a little yeah. bit
2: about that? No, I, I just agree with Mike that uh, as someone who's, you know, been involved in the labor movement for uh, 50 years and was a full-time union official uh, involved in trying to help workers with uh, workplace problems, including health and safety problems. I was really struck by how many service Related conditions, um, you know, in writing this book and interviewing veterans, learning about their problems. We're not combat related, and uh, you know, we in the book we call it the result of friendly fire. Really, it's it's avoid harm that could have been avoided if this wasn't an employer, you know, which has no occupational health and safety rules applying to it, no EPA uh, coverage. Uh, uh no no unions, totally non-union. and so you know people get end up being exposed to you know burn pits, uh, they get issued defective uh, hearing equipment, defective helmets, uh, all kinds of uh, accidents and injuries occur on the job, uh, as you mentioned, you know, far from any combat zone. and um, that creates this great need when people get out sooner or later to, apply for some sort of disability rating and access to health care coverage, even if uh, they had, as you had, some job-based coverage through a spouse or, or through private sector employment. So uh, I think people really have to, you know, think about the military as a job um, and one where uh, there need to be many more, you know, legal protections, uh, for people while they're wearing a uniform, because right now they're largely unprotected. The 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 DoD Pentagon is a very reckless and callous uh, employer. Contracts out to uh, firms which you know dispose of toxic waste in in ways that uh, you couldn't do here in this country anymore. But we're fine in Iraq and Afghanistan. So now we have three point five million people exposed to that. Um, and it's going to cost $280 billion or more over the next 10 years to care for them. And, uh, you know, the DOD contractors responsible for that, KBR and other companies, they're, all, you know, they're not paying the tab for this. Uh, we all are, and we need to, but uh, a lot of this stuff could be prevented on the front end.
0: Well, the Department of Defense, and, and that's true of a lot of other military organizations, uh, people go to the military has always been re- regarded as disposable and that's very true I know some people might listening to this thing might think well, the military does some other good things and so have some other good but the problem one of the problems other is is sort of the the way that the military front loads uh, people into the military and that's through the high schools the high schools is a, a, a through courtesy of the No Child Left Behind Act, military is guaranteed a presence in all high schools across the country, unless the high schools want to opt out, in which case they lose federal funding. One of the things that VA did in uh, several years just prior to the COVID was we went and uh, uh, got together a, a uh, what to call it, military IQ test. And we uh, compiled about 400 of those responses, which were anonymous and uh, private, you know, one of the, uh, some of the questions that we asked was you, how many, do you know how many years you're obligated for? It's eight years. Most people did not know that. They also did, also did not know that if they were in the DEP, the delayed entry program, which through almost all people go into the military, that's an opt out thing that you can opt out at any time. As military recruiters are required not to lie about that if they're asked, but they don't tell the students. The yeah, other was a, the level of, of uh, suicide and sexual assault which is extremely high in the military. Uh, it's not something that students going into the military or thinking about the military or know of. They also don't know of, although they've got a better exa- idea now of sort of the physical, the, the um, health liabilities of the military, th- thanks to recent sort of uh, events. But students are not really uh, aware of of what you know, Once you're in the military, the military can ask you to do anything they want to. So if you think that you're, in, you're going to be enlisted for something like that, you could end up as like many people did sort of in the Air Force, end up as a truck driver driving a convoy in Iraq or Afghanistan, not your primary job. So um, one of the things that VFP and uh, parts of other, other uh, organizations associated with do is try and give students a uh, little bit sort of different information about thinking about joining the military. It is a toxic, dangerous institution, and um, you need to know that going in.
1: Absolutely, no, I mean, and- And And I think it's
2: important that, you know, some people, certainly active duty, US military folks are still barred by federal law from forming a union, but uh, National Guard members uh, assigned to in-state duty Uh, are organizing into public employee unions in several states, in Connecticut and Texas. Uh, My union of communication workers has a Texas affiliate called the Texas State Employees Union, and they have a military caucus. They've been signing up people in the Texas National Guard who are very opposed to the border deployment that... uh, Uh, They were sent on uh, more than a year ago by their right wing Republican Governor Abbott as kind of a political stunt, a re-election year thing to show that he was tough on immigrants. And uh, at the same time he was cutting tuition assistance uh, for uh, guard members, he was uh, calling up 10,000 of them uh, for mall cop duty uh, on the border. And, you know, rather than just gripe about that, people signed up to become union members, which you can do uh, when you're a national guard, uh, member uh, serving in, 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 state and, uh, they've linked up with other Texas state employees. They're lobbying the legislature around, uh, uh workplace issues affecting guard members, you know, tech, it's Texas. They can't bargain a contract. They don't have the right to strike, but, um, people are finding ways to organize even while they're still wearing a uniform.
0: That's, that's really encouraging news. Uh, you know, as you may know, the, uh, National Guard was, was uh, they were going to call out the National Guard in various states to deal with the Black Lives protests. Um, many, many Guard members said, who are a lot of a lot of them are minorities, says, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to be in a position where we actually have to uh, beat up or shoot uh, uh, American citizens. And that's one of the great things about the National Guard is that it is a citizen-soldier organization, uh, and and. Incidentally, they actually had took a lot of of brunt of the war in Iraq, in particular as National Guard units were shipped over there. Often, these are middle aged men and women who had got lost their jobs and and didn't have their jobs to come back to. So it's it's a, a sort of another case of the military abusing its its own. Um, so anyway. Uh, We've got about another five minutes. What what haven't we covered that we need to talk about?
1: <laughs> I I think we've done a pretty good job. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the other things that we talk about in the book um, that's really worth discussing is um, the, you know, the, the way veterans hiring preferences and the way transition people who counsel veterans council service members about future prospects when they leave the military, often channel people into police and security jobs that may not really give them the kind of opportunities that they deserve in life and um, tend to militarize the police. I mean, there have been a lot of studies of uh, officer-involved shootings and uh, veterans, uh, have are two to three times more likely to be involved in an officer involved shooting. Um, combat veterans three times more likely and non-combat veterans two times more likely. And there was a very interesting report by the International Association of Police chiefs talking about how um, you know, veterans bring some skills as police officers, but also bring a lot of problems, particularly if they were in Iraq and Afghanistan or in combat areas where it's kind of urban warfare and then they go into a urban warfare situation with policing and um they're not very good at de-escalating and they're very good at escalating I mean it was you know George Floyd was killed by a, a vet right um Derek Chauvin and um so I yeah, think it's a, problem.
2: it's a problem we talk about in the book because, um, you know, vets are 7% of the adult population, but nearly 20% of all law enforcement officers. And there's, a uh, you know, there was much more publicity during the Black Lives Matter protests about the uh, Pentagon uh, uh, to police equipment pipeline, because we saw such a shocking <laughs> display of cast off Pentagon equipment. Uh, and gear being deployed by civilian, supposedly civilian police departments around the country for riot control purposes. Uh, the other pipeline really is the VetCop pipeline. It's encouraged by the DoD. It's encouraged by uh, some veterans organizations, and you know we argue in the book. There's lots of ways that veterans who Uh, serve their country, can serve their communities in other ways. You can go to work for the VA in the way that we mentioned earlier. About 110,000 veterans have taken uh, advantage of their hiring preferences to become postal workers, Uh, a lot of them uh, African-American. And, um, you know, they're also involved in a very, very tough anti-privatization fight uh, that affects their pay, benefits, job security, pensions and uh, you know, whether we're going to continue to have public delivery of mail as opposed to contracting all that out, as Republicans uh, have been trying to do for years. So uh, there are other public sector job uh, uh, employment options available to former service members that uh, we highlight in the book. Uh, and uh, we do raise some questions about the desirability of trading one uniform uh, to another. Um, for certain veterans who've had certain kinds of experiences and may not make the best cops and may not be good for them or the community they're supposed to serve right.
1: and it, and that's a very important point is that it may not be good for them. I mean, when I wrote my book, Wounds of War, um there was a a, a guy I interviewed in um, Hawaii who had been a who was a sheriff and he had serious PTSD from his time in Iraq. And he was told by a psychiatrist that if he wanted to get better and keep his family uh you know it wouldn't it would you know another, a third stay in a residential treatment program was was not the treatment what what the treatment was was uh changing his job and they gave him woke rehab and he became a a, a skilled uh craftsman um, and there's a
2: great program that the FLCO sponsors to uh, promote that it's called uh uh, helmets to hard hats. And again, you know, it's a it's a, a civ- military to civilian job transition that uh, the labor movement encourages a lot of uh, uh, vets in building trades jobs. And it's also a very good program to check out.
1: Yeah. So I think there's, you know, one, many, many solutions to this problem. And obviously, the biggest solution is not defund the police but defund the military
0: you know
1: <laughs> yeah. um and, and military budgets and um and and increased budgets for the va and for other services postal service etc
0: uh thanks a lot and also thanks for mentioning it uh, the privatization goes beyond the va of course uh with me today are suzanne gordon and steve early they are going to be speaking at the labor veterans and Healthcare. Forum Against Privatization later this month, March 28th, at the Labor Council, Seattle. And uh, they are also authors of the book, uh, Our Veterans,